Hello, hello, and welcome to the Let Me Explain podcast. This week, a bit of a tour through history. This week, I'm on my holidays. It feels great to say. So while you're listening to this, I am probably going to be burning, uh, swelteringly hot in Rome, in that capital of ancient history, one of the oldest continuously occupied cities in the world and one of those ones that I was fascinated by when I was a child but I was looking I thought it was a bit warm when it got up this morning in Ireland it was about 19 degrees uh, I then looked at what the temperature was in Rome it was 31 with lows expected at night time of 22 so if I don't come back I have officially melted into a puddle and just been absorbed into the streets and the sewers of Rome. So while I'm away, I was thinking, let's do a little bit of a history tour because we've done a surprising amount of history podcasts or something that is sort of a more current affairs focused usually on the show. You could see the history nerd in both me and Lachlan and John sort of coming out every so often. So uh, while I'm away, while you're off or whatever it is you're doing where you're listening to this, just have an enjoy back of some of the best bits of our history focused episodes and let me explain over the last while. Enjoy the break, enjoy the holidays and I will be back very much burnt. Uh, I would say I would be lighter from having just literally sweated away most of my body weight but it's Italy, it's Rome. I'm going to eat as much pasta, as much pizza as possible. We kind of realised we actually haven't planned what we're going to do sites-wise, what we're going to see. We have just planned restaurants. That's all we've done. Wine and pasta and pizza and tiramisu and everything else and I will be rolled back into Dublin if I indeed make it back in one piece. So enjoy the episode and we'll chat to you next week. This week, who was St. Bridget anyway? I have to say my own strongest memory of St. Bridget is making the crosses in school. But as her feast day approached this year, I realised I just don't know a huge amount about her. And then when I went digging, I find what you so often find with historical figures. There are quite a few stories and different opinions on which one is right. And many of them probably will never be provable because the march of time has just washed away so much evidence. So what seems to be more or less generally agreed is that St. Bridget lived around the middle of the 5th century and could have been born around the year 450 and died around the year 525. And all sorts of people take claims on St. Bridget. She's sometimes, for example, called the female patron saint of beer after a Jesus-like legend that she once turned bath water into beer for a leper colony. Abortion Rights Ireland and others down through the years have also claimed that St. Bridget carried out the first abortion in Ireland. And this is based on a history written in the 7th century, which claims someone came to her with a crisis pregnancy and that she made the fetus disappear. So she's been appropriated, I suppose, in many different ways over the years. But let's find out the real history with this week's guest. My name is Dr. Niamh Witcherly, and I'm a medieval historian with the Department of Early Irish in Maynooth University. So I'm going to ask you a nice and easy question to start. Who was St. Bridget? Uh, that's If we could answer that, Sean, uh, um, that would, there would be no need for any of all the millions of interviews Uh Genuinely, it's not an easy question to answer. To me, Bridget is the patron of Kildare. She's the woman who founded what became one of the most powerful institutions in the country in the Middle Ages. 
Now, you will have heard me talk in the past, particularly in the episode on famous events to happen on Christmas Day, which you can scroll back in your feed and have a listen to, about how history is written by the winners. And the Catholic Church was the big winner of the time. So much of what we know about medieval and pre-medieval history comes through the viewpoint of Catholic scholars who, like an awful lot of historians, if not every historian in some way, aren't unbiased, which in part has led to a belief that there was a pre-Christian god called Bridget, and instead of there being an actual, real Saint Bridget as a person, the church just appropriated the name in order to get those people to converse. Let's see what Neve thinks. The, the story I have heard, and I've heard many different stories of the time, is that there was a pagan goddess, Bridget, and that when Christianity came along, it was a, it was one of these, a bit like Christmas Day is so in some ways, was an easy date or an easy name to maybe transition people from paganism to Christianity. Is there any truth or any evidence in that? So I was also told that and believed that. And it's funny, because it's only now that I'm, I was only talking to a colleague last night and I'm wondering whether we were thinking maybe we should write an academic paper or something because where all, you know, where did all this start from? Because, you know, in university, that's what I also was led to believe. Um, but actually, Actually, the evidence, there's no evidence for the goddess. One of the pieces you've written online, Neve, in the last while, you described Bridget as a boss. Why? Yeah, so, you know, she, and not to be glib, right, but she is kind of the original, you know, CEO, patron, founder, you know, the influencer. She really, she really is. And, and you know, if we take, if we understand all of those kind of things today, like we take, you know, influencers on Instagram, I mean, that's Bridget. Whatever Bridget did, everyone else was copying her. Okay, so everyone wanted to be like Bridget. Everyone wanted to be associated with Bridget, you know? So she would... In that regard, I think it's a really easy analogy. And then, again, the whole, you know, we have so many, you know, so many websites now, it's like patron and founder, you know, founder and patron of this, you know, CEO of this company, that kind of thing. She... Uh, you know, she's this person who founded this just massive institution. And even though we may not know exactly how that evolved, right? It, but, you know, in her time and in the generation straight after her, okay? We do know that within, let's say, about 100 years, this, her company, for want of a better word, you know, becomes one of the most influential in the country. So definitely she's a boss. And the other part of that, the other huge part of that is, it was really difficult for women to do anything in medieval Ireland. So while the names are used fairly interchangeably, it's really public holidays we're talking about rather than bank holidays. And as is often the case with the root of all of these things, we have to go way back in time to find it. I've always loved the phrase, when in Rome. One of those things is just justify doing basically whatever you want to do, even if it's something that you wouldn't normally do or wouldn't think that you would normally do. And when you look at the lives of the Romans, it's a fairly fitting saying. Any race that had a room in which you could go to vomit during a celebration so that you could fit more food and wine in, well, that, they get an A-plus for debauchery in my book. Now, I'm going to be straight with you. When you hear how many public holidays these ancient people may have had, you are going to be depressed. While in Ireland in 2023, we have 10, there may have been well over 100 a year in Athens and Rome. These were mostly feast days or celebration days for certain gods and goddesses, almost certainly tied into religious festivals. And particularly 
As the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods all represented different things, it's fair to assume that certain trades wouldn't work on the feast day of their patrons. If you were an ironmonger or if you were an armorer, maybe you wouldn't celebrate on the feast day of, of Mars or the Ares, the god of war. My own personal favourite, I have to admit, would be Athens's second patron, behind, of course, Athena, which gave the city its name, the god Dionysus, the god of wine. Now there is a public holiday that I could very much get behind. In Rome in particular, very rich people could also declare public holidays of a sort, often putting big money behind lavish parties to celebrate some sort of victory that they have. Victorious generals as well might have been offered what's called a triumph through Rome, essentially this big parade through the city where they would show off the wealth and the prisoners that they captured after conquering some far-flung and exotic region. Sort of a a status symbol celebration for the returning general and army often granted by the Senate that would tend to accompany a public holiday or even many days of public holiday, I suppose, depending on the level of victory. And that in itself became a type of a status symbol alone with Caesar. Caesar got a week. Well, I'm going to need 12 days. You know, my victories are much bigger than, than that guy's. But if you're starting to think, yeah, look, this sounds brilliant. More than 100 days off a year. Absolutely. Sign me up. Partying when I could be working. Absolutely. You have to consider that the likelihood was that most of the people, most of the common people at least, were not paid for the days they didn't work, which suddenly makes it sound a lot less attractive. Let's fast forward to the Middle Ages and back to Ireland, and it's more than likely the people then had far more days off a year than we get now, if not quite on par with the Romans and Athenians, albeit with that same problem as well of not getting paid for it. It's only into the 19th century when we start to see talk of bank holidays specifically. But we know, for example, through an almanac from 1833 that the Bank of England and many other public workers in, you know, the Kingdom, Great Britain of of Britain and Ireland got around 40 days off a year at that stage. And these included some we consider as was a bit weird today, or maybe that you'd like to have off today. The Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th, the Feast of St. Paul, Valentine's Day, Pancake Tuesday, September the 2nd, which marked the first day of the Great Fire of London, November 4th for the day William the Conqueror landed in England, and the 25th through the 28th of December. And by the time the term bank holidays entered the public lexicon a few decades later, that number had reduced down to four a year. The first Monday in August, Easter Monday, Wish Monday, which was a religious day, Pentecost Monday, and St. Stephen's Day, if that fell on a weekday. Miserly so-and-so's reducing it. 40 down to four, I'd be apoplectic. On this episode, Inside Ardna Crusher. If Ireland was to have an industrial revival and improve her agricultural methods, there must be power available throughout the land. The ESB was the first semi-state company set up to manage the building of a massive hydroelectric dam on the River Shannon, and it partnered with Pathé Films to do the promotion of the project. Doyle Aaron, when still outlawed, set up a commission of inquiry into the use of native resources. But the great project was to stem from the experiences of a young Drogheda man, Tommy McLaughlin. And let's just try and put everything into context right here. It's 1924, and the engineer just mentioned, Thomas McLaughlin, proposes damming the Shannon. It gets government approval, and work starts in 1925. The Irish Free State had only been established for 
two years at this stage. It was sort of an extraordinary project to be taking on for such a new government, but many in the Dáil and within the government itself were actually opposed to the plans. Eamon de Valera, who was on the opposition benches at the time, said he wouldn't have gone ahead with it. Instead, they should have done a smaller project on the River Liffey to serve Dublin and then worry about the rest a little bit later. And a big part of the opposition was Ireland partnering up with a German company to deliver the project. It was a deal between the Free State and Siemens Schuchert Engineering company with around a thousand Germans coming to Ireland to work on the project. This, of course, only seven years after the end of World War One, and there was obviously still a lot of scepticism about the Germans around at the time. The Irish Times wrote a piece saying that the project would damage relations with Britain, and indeed the British were none too plussed with this going ahead, fearing it was a cover for Germany to establish a, a base effectively in Ireland. The Daily Mail pitching it as a bid for the economic control of Ireland, basically set up a German client state on the UK's doorstep given the money involved. Dev was also against the Germans referring to train up Irish people with his Liffey project and then achieve things more gradually if there was more power needed to you would have then Irish trained engineers who could do this and forget the Germans altogether. The shortest serving president was Ireland's fourth Erskine Childers who died after around 16 months in office. He had a heart attack while he was addressing the Royal College of Psychiatrists on Kildare Street. As for the shortest serving ministers, Bertie Hearn actually was the Minister for Industry and Commerce for just eight days in 1993, around the time a new government was being formed, while Barry Cowan lasted just 17 days into this government before getting sacked as Agriculture Minister. John Curl, I wish to announce for the information of the Doyle uh, that the President, on my advice this evening, terminated the appointment of Deputy Barry Cowan as a member of the government. But let us leave our own shores behind, because this is where things get really interesting. Let me take you on a trip to Vatican City. The year was 1590, and as the summer turned to autumn, the Catholic Church needed a new pope. In steps the 69-year-old Gian Battista Castagna, who became Pope Urban VII on the 15th of September. Just 12 days later, he was dead. It's believed malaria killed off history's shortest-serving Pope, but he does have the distinction that in those 12 days that he was in charge, he brought in what's considered the earliest recorded smoking ban. Urban VII threatened to excommunicate anyone who took tobacco in the porchway of or outside a church, whether by chewing it, smoking it, or sniffing it through the nose. A lot of the shortest-serving leaders in history tend to come around times of conflict, so let's head back to Europe in the 1940s. As the bombs fell over Germany and the Allies advanced ever closer towards Berlin, Fuhrer Adolf Hitler killed himself in a war bunker. That site today is now a car park, part of an effort to ensure that there were no shrines to Nazism after the war. Hitler's immediate successor is technically Germany's shortest-serving leader. The Nazis' chief propagandist, Joseph Goebbels, succeeded Hitler, only to take his own life along with his wife the following day. Meanwhile, in Italy, the end of the war saw the death of Mussolini and serious questions about the future of the monarchy. In 1946, King Victor Emmanuel III abdicated, hoping that the modernity of his son Umberto might be enough to secure a future for his line. 
it wasn't, and the people of Italy voted to become a republic, meaning that Umberto, the last king of Italy, reigned for just 34 days before being banished, along with all his male heirs. But he is not the shortest-serving king of all time, and for that, to France we go. We set the clock back to 1830, a dangerous period to be in the monarchy in France, and after no small amount of unrest, Charles X decided in the face of protests he was going to abdicate the throne. His son, Louis Antoine, thus became Louis XIX, King Louis XIX, and his reign lasted all of 20 minutes, before he too abdicated the throne, realising the protesters that didn't want his dad didn't want him either. There is another claim to being a 20-minute king. Louis-Philippe was the Prince Royal of Portugal and heir to the throne. In 1908, he was riding in an open carriage on the way back to Lisbon with his father, mother and brother when two gunmen opened fire. The king was killed immediately, but Louis-Philippe lived for another 20 minutes, making him technically the king for 20 minutes. 